0: It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalized and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us.
1: Good morning, everyone. You are listening to Green Left Radio, and on the line we have myself, Jacob and Joafa.
0: And me, Zay Alcorn. There you go.
1: So we're going to be your presenters for this week's program today. Um This has been recorded on the 14th of January, but obviously it's going to be broadcast to you on the second Friday of January, or I think, or I presume, yeah, it's the second Friday of January in the new year of 2021, which we can sort of hope is going to be a better year than 2020. But I'll, I'll kind of say this year is not necessarily up to, a great start yet. In fact, <laughs> when we were talking about last week, we were talking about the assault on the Capitol building by the group of far-right extremists um, in the United States, basically trying to make an, um basically trying to demand that Donald Trump remain um, the President of the United States. But I guess just before I go into what we have kind of lined up for our program, I'll I think we're important that we acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wurundjeri of the Kulin Nation. Um, we like to um, pay our respect to Elders past and present, and that acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land, and that Free CR and Left Radio um, supports the fight back of First Nations people, and the fight for decolonisation and sovereignty.
0: nice.
1: Now, I guess just to give a bit of a a lead into what we're going to be um, having on our program, we have done, we did a, we have an interview with um, Jonathan um, Lockhart, who is an African-American activist who is based in, um, Sydney, Australia, and where um, ha- here we're, have, we have, we're going to be having a bit of a discussion with him about the assault on the Capitol building by in the United States, and essentially what they kind of represent in terms of racism and the inherent racism of the United States. Then we're going to be playing uh, on a recording of a talk by a socialist based in the United States, Isaac Silver, who's giving his sort of a bit of his assessment of. US politics, especially in the context of all the kind of events that have been kind of happening um, at the start of this year. But I guess I wanted to kind of start off with uh, a, a bit of a discussion. This is a news article that was um, published in Green Left um, recently, and it's an article that's that is um, written by Yanis um, Iqbal, and it's. Build vaccine Nationalism and the Global South. To give you a bit of a, I guess, summary of the article, and maybe just to start off with, I guess, a few kind of comments, is one of the more interesting kind of things at the start of this year and going in towards the end of last year, and we sort of mentioned it a number of times on our program, but it's but when it comes to this whole COVID nineteen pandemic, um, which is currently ravaging um countries like the United States and the UK right now, and I haven't necessarily looked at the latest statistics, but um essentially what one sort of amazing kind of develop that has kind of happened is that a number of pharmaceutical um organ companies and vaccine developers have been able to develop um a COVID nineteen vaccine and one uh there's probably there's particular issues with kind of all uh, with numbers of vaccines. There's no perfect vaccine for COVID nineteen at this point. In fact some of the better vaccines actually um appear to require you to have two doses and in fact looking at um in what's happening in britain in britain if you are if you get the um a vaccine you are expected to and reminded to make sure you kind of have a second dose Mm. but what one of the sort of um and now this is one of the more important kind of points um that is sort of written in this article going back to um nationalism the global south which is printed in green left um it starts off with this point by the secretary general the United States, um, United, no, United Nations, correction, Antonio Guterres, who tweeted on January 3rd, vaccine nationalism is not only unfair, it is self-defeating. No country will be safe until all countries are safe. Mm. Now, what he's kind of, kind of returning, um, um, what he's sort of referring to is we essentially, with the development of this vaccine, we are essentially having a situation where uh, of global, global kind of vaccine apartheid, basically unequal distribution of COVID-19 vaccines on economic lines. And to give a bit of a kind of summary, uh, a start to give a bit of an example, wealthy nations such as the United States, Britain, Japan and the European Union have spent Billions of dollars on deals with vaccine developers such as, um, Hulza, Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca, even before their eff- efficiency was, um, was proven. Ri- rich nations representing only just 14% of the world's population have essentially, um, because of the whole private market model that these vaccines have been developed in, have basically bought up 53% of all the promising vaccines that have been um, so far. Um, A good example is Australia, Canada and Japan, which represent less than 1% of the world's coronavirus cases, have pre-ordered more doses of vaccines than all of Latin America and the Caribbean which is a region which represents more than 17% of global coronavirus cases. Mm. Canada has signed deals to secure up to 414 million doses of various vaccines, up to five times more than its population requires. The US and Germany have contracted for enough doses of various COVID-19 vaccines to inoculate their population several times over. And of course, but interesting sort of enough, in the US many vaccines are set to expire even before they're being distributed and of course more than 12 million doses of vaccines have already been distributed and this is in around 33 countries worldwide but none of these countries are of course as going hand in hand with the sort of apartheid kind of comparison are in Africa and South Africa one particular kind of example is um, probably one of the most badly hit countries on the African continent. In fact, just a bit of an extra sort of info, there has been some recent sort of news articles which indicates that a, a particular new strand of COVID-19, although I'm not a, a qualified scientist, so I can't sort of comment all of that, but it has been reported in the media that one of the more um A new strand of COVID-19 is coming from, has its origins in South Africa and potentially might, some of these sort of potential vaccines might not be able to work, um, might not work for it. Um, But the country's government, um, it's basically been unable to procure a, a vaccine and the country's government says it was unable to persuade the company, which is modern now to submit its vaccine to the South African Health Products Regulatory Authority, um, SAHPRA, which is the agency that um, approves vaccines. And while Moderna has refused to sell vaccines to South Africa, it has agreed to sell 40 million doses of its vaccines to Canada, 100 million doses to the United States, and 160 million doses to the European Union. And this is just an example of an, the, the monomorphization of rich countries um, of the vaccine. And of course, and one of the more promising vaccines, the Pythaza, um vaccine has sold more than 80% of it, of their vaccine doses that's um, going to be able to produce by the um, end of the year to only a handful of countries to the global north. We're, with no no countries in the global South included. Nearly 74 countries, as it's written here in this article, will only be able to vaccinate one in 10 people against COVID-19 this year due to vaccine apartheid. And of course, it's also written that most people in poor countries will be waiting until 2024 for vaccinations if high income countries keep engaging in monopolistic practices. And there was actually a report um, by the Northeastern University um, where researchers said that this monopolisation of vaccines by wealthy nations could cause almost twice as many deaths as distributing them equally.
0: Yeah, I think... Uh, Antonio Guterres, the uh, Secretary General of the UN has hit it on the head, hit the nail on the head when he says this is counterproductive for everyone, this, this process. Uh, one example that comes to mind is anti-vaxxers, typically in more wealthy neighbourhoods, not immunising their kids. Now, why is this a problem? Because you need herd immunity, you need as many people as possible to be immunised to stop the spread of some of these old style diseases like measles that have that have been um, that have had successful vaccines for many decades once you get anti-vaxxers and you get a pool of people who are not vaccinating their kids, it creates a transmission risk for people who have had the vaccine but as with the COVID vaccine um, we know that certain vaccines against these things are not 100 percent effective so they rely on a combination of the efficacy the effectiveness of the vaccine plus everyone getting the vaccine that's how you eliminate communicable diseases and viruses so if you've got a situation that's kind of the reverse of that We've got little islands of rich people in Europe and Australia and Japan, Canada, the USA, who are all getting immunised, and then everyone else is not getting immunised because the asshole rich people have monopolised the vaccine and are stopping anyone else from having it. Well, what you're going to have is kind of like the inverse. It would be like if instead of in, you know, at your preschool in Turak, you get this pool of, kids with measles who can then spread it to everyone else who's done the right thing and been vaccinated. You get the opposite where, okay, people in wealthy countries have been vaccinated, but there's this huge pool of people who still have COVID over the entire rest of the planet. And there's a risk of, you know, there's a constant risk of that being transmitted through the the immunised populations in the West. So it's, it's just really dumb. And then the other issue here is mutations. We've already seen with this UK strain of the virus that's really, um, it's much more transmittable, um, much more infectious. We've already seen you don't want large populations of people infected with COVID uh all the while the, the virus is able to mutate and take on dangerous new mutations. Now, if COVID is left in the global south because these people are not being given access to cheap vaccines, they're not being given equitable access to vaccines, that creates a serious risk that new strains of COVID that are not responding like the example you mentioned in South Africa, but potentially far worse, uh, new mutations of COVID could be occurring over these next, however long, couple of years that that people are speculating it might take before these vaccines are available in the global South. So yeah, it's just, it's so dumb. And it's like, uh, you're kind of reminded of panic buying like when the f- first lockdown started. And we've seen this again in Brisbane just recently or, and also in the northern beaches when there was a lockdown there late last year. This ridiculous thing of panic buying doesn't make any sense because even in the middle of a harsh lockdown, you can still go to the bloody shops and buy food, but you get this thing where people are buying all of the bloody stock off the shelves. And I can't help but be reminded of that, but it's like rich Western governments Buying all of the vaccine stock off the shelves and not leaving any for anyone else. It is just utter lunacy and there needs to be an effective global program to get everyone immunized. That's the only way we're going to stop this virus is to get the virus, to get the vaccine to everyone, not just a minority of the world's population in the West. That's not how vaccinating people works.
1: Uh, well, to comment a bit further to respond to that, and as it's kind of written in the article, there is there is a kind of institution that's kind of designed to actually distribute the um the vaccine, um on on a more equal kind of basis. So hmm. there is the COVID nineteen vaccine global access facility, which is being led by the World Health Organization. And it has been established as it's written in the article to prevent unequal vaccine distribution. And however, as the kind of article kind of notes, there is a number of kind of problems with it. Basically, this institution is funded from, through donations from high income countries and which is basically insufficient for ensuring timely and equitable access to COVID-19. Um, vaccines, COVAX aims to procure 2 billion doses of vaccines to share them equally between high-income and low- and middle-income countries. However, what has actually happened is they've only reserved 1 billion doses so far, but by comparison, 35 countries have reserved 6 billion doses for themselves through all these sort of bilateral deals uh, with pharmaceutical companies. And, of course, low-income countries with, um, with with a combined population of 1.7 billion people have not been able to sign a single bilateral vaccine deal. And it has been COVAX has essentially been criticised for negotiating prices that prioritise profit over the consideration of vaccines as a global public good. There's a lack of transparency of the contracts that they enter in with vaccine manufacturers, And of course, there's also a failure to address the impacts of intellectual property rights on vaccines. Hmm. Of course, there are some countries, there are countries in the global, um, South, um, such as South Africa and India, where their governments are trying to make, um, are trying to campaign to call for the World Trade Organization to suspend intellectual property rights related to COVID-19. Um, for all the kind of reasons we've sort of been talking about in terms of ensuring equi- um, quality. but I also think that one of the sort of lessons in this is, I think it does—it relates very strongly to the nature, I guess, of the capitalist system, because I think it is, as I sort of—I—I I sort of said at the start. It is sort of amazing that uh, an effective an effective vaccine has actually been developed so quickly. In fact, I was almost speculating that a vaccine wouldn't even be developed until mid-2021 or the end of 2021, and already countries are distributing the vaccine. Of course, that said, when you look at what's actually happening in countries like um, the United States, the vaccine isn't even a quick fix um because... Because my, a lot of countries are still having high rates of community transmission and a, a vaccine just isn't a quick fix to actually... Well, that,
0: apart it. from that, the USA is just utterly shit at distributing it. Like, I've, I've read someone posted a thing on Facebook the other day saying that at the current rate of immunisation in the USA, it'll be 10 years before they vaccinate the entire population. So, And I mean,
1: yeah... I mean, considering this is the same country that has issues with making COVID testing available to most of the population, I'm not um, shocked no. um, because one of the funny things, um, I was talking to a friend in the United States and he's convinced he might have COVID, but it's actually very difficult to get a COVID test. It's not like Australia where there's testing centres um, everywhere where you could get tested, etc., cetera, and it has a fully sort of planned approach um in the united states it's actually quite difficult to get um covid tested um and i'm pretty sure you um there are some places that use covid tests that not even a, that are not even 100% accurate but i'm um, i guess going back to kind of my point i think really this whole the whole thing around the fact that this has been allowed to happen is I think is another i think strong example of how unequal the capitalist system is and how you know, something like a vaccine shouldn't be put in the hands of private operators whose only interest is to make a profit. And in fact, the only winners that are going to be um, out of this are going to be the pharmaceutical companies who are going to reap massive profits. And in fact, I'm sort of reminded who was, his name was Jonas Salk, and he basically Um, he invented the polio vaccine, which was one of the more successful vaccines in history. And one of the more kind of amazing things that he did was he basically opposed um, patenting his polio vaccine because he believed that it was in the good of humanity that it be widely distributed and not be utilised to make a profit. Um, So it's just a shame that, you know, Um, this is not going to be the case. Uh, this is not going to be the case for any of the COVID vaccines that have been developed at this stage.
0: Mm. Which further undermines this idea that you need to pay people heaps of money and use intellectual property rights to get innovation. Like the example you've just given of the polio vaccine shows that actually there's quite intelligent people out there doing, inventing really cool stuff for the good of humanity, not because they want to get rich off it. But yeah, it's just, it's so undemocratic and it speaks to the capitalist system where you get a small minority of a given population, including the global population that have got all the money and all the power and hence controlled decisions. And then literally the majority of the world's population are locked out of the process of of, of not given a full voice, a full democratic voice, in this crucial process of making sure that the whole planet gets immunized to, to get rid of this virus.
1: Yeah. Anyway, we might, um, we might conclude this kind of discussion and for our listeners kind of info, you can read more, um, or read in detail about all the kind of things that we've been discussing in an article, um, titled Vaccine Nationalism and the Global um South, I'm pretty sure that's what the article is titled or the Global North. Let's quickly let me double check, sorry. Um yeah, Racine the article is titled Racine Nationalism in the Global South, and it's currently available to read online at greenleft.org.au. I'll just and I'll just play I guess a, a quick announcement
2: The St Vincent's Hospital Melbourne Emergency Appeal is raising funds to support our frontline staff. Funds raised through the appeal are being used to immediately purchase urgently needed equipment. Please donate today. Call 9231 3365 or visit stvfoundation.org.au. St Vincent's Foundation is a 3CR supporter. All
0: right, welcome back. You are listening to Green Left Radio. Uh, with Jacob and Zane, and it's Friday morning, the 15th of January. Uh, now, we've got a bit of coverage of last week's, well, depending who you talk to, coup attempt, riot, insurrection uh, in the US, uh, on the US Capitol building in Washington, DC. Now, there's been a bunch of coverage of this. There's been a pretty scary report that's just come out over the last couple of days, where the FBI has given a briefing to uh, some Democrats in um, in Washington saying that there could be large protests outside um, state capitol buildings across the country and that Washington itself, for Joe Biden's uh, inauguration, may face the largest armed protest ever seen in the USA. Whether that's just hype that's kind of being bounced around uh, or whether it's a genuine threat remains to be seen, uh, but it's pretty concerning. And the National Guard has apparently been uh, drafting up its uh, rules of engagement for warfare in the case that there is a large armed demonstration and any attempts at You know, uh, shooting Democrats or trying to assassinate Joe Biden. So, uh, safe to say that's a pretty unprecedented and hairy kind of, uh, situation. Now, some of the, there's been various coverage from different left wing groups and organizations, uh, following the events of January 6th. Uh, some of the coverage is looking at how this was a, kind of poorly um, poorly executed, thrown together uh, riot. It was not a serious coup attempt and it did not have the backing of any substantial section of the military or the um, ruling class, which I think is broadly speaking true. But uh, some of the other coverage that's going around, for example, is an article by... Uh, Richard Seymour, um, on Patreon where it's titled, is it still fascism if it's incompetent? And what Richard Seymour points out is that, okay, this was not a serious, um, coup attempt. He agrees. It doesn't have the major backing of the ruling class. Um, it didn't have the backing of a big section of the kind of military brass or whatever. So it was not a serious coup attempt. Nonetheless, uh, historically genuine coup attempts have been preceded by more ad hoc attempts, such as we've just seen on January 6th and those involved learn from the process and refine their, um, skills if you want to call it that at overthrowing a government and so um richard seymour is saying that um, This inchoate fascism, fascism in its experimental speculative phase in which is forming a coalition of minoritarian popular forces with elements in the executive and the repressive wing of the state, it would be devastatingly stupid, complacent beyond belief to expect US democracy to remain sufficiently stable in the coming years to deny this incipient fascism more opportunities to congeal and grow. Don't tell me that the US bourgeoisie, We'll never support fascism because liberal democracy is working well enough. Don't tell me that fascism won't gain a foothold in a society where the left has been weak for decades and much of the labour movement barely has a pulse. These points are beside the point. Fascism never grows in the first instance because the capitalist class rallies behind it. It grows because it draws around its nucleus, those whom Clara Zepkin described as the politically homeless, the socially uprooted, the destitute, and disillusioned. And incipient fascism has grown from India to the Philippines, has has shown, rather, from India to the Philippines, that it does not need a strong communism to react against. Ernst Nolte's hypothesis was incorrect. There is an urgent need for an anti-fascist movement in the United States. Um, So I think Richard Seymour has summed it up quite well. Um, there, uh, some of the other coverage that's been going around is looking at how, um, new anti-terror laws and new, you know, additional resources for the state, um, new repressive powers are not what is needed to combat, um, this uh, new threat from the far right in the US. And I, for one, thoroughly agree with that point. Um, I'm old enough to remember the war on terror and all of those new surveillance laws and all this new special funding for heaps more. um, Police to monitor the population and uh, all these new powers to be able to detain people without charge for large amounts of time. Those laws, those extra police resources and staff were already there and were not utilised in the lead up to, uh, and indeed during, the events of January 6. So, uh yeah, this idea that more police powers are needed is bollocks and we know that those extra police powers will be wielded against progressive activists and the left. Uh What's this is a political issue and um, what's missing is the political will from those who control the police to um, direct them to act against the far right and we know that there's a sort of an interpenetration of the far right and the police and there's a bunch of off-duty police uh, officers and ex-military people directly involved in the events of January 6th and people from the capital police facilitating it so um Yeah, I think yeah. what's really needed is a mass movement to confront the far right in the streets and to make fascists afraid again. And to, you know, the, the post-war consensus after World War Two was it's not cool to be a Nazi. And that's what we need to get back to a society wide idea. It's not cool to be a Nazi. And that's everyone's business. and We can't leave that up to the state.
1: Thank you very much for that, Zane. So this is kind of like a good kind of segue. Um, as I as I sort of planned, we have a number of um, interviews and kind of discussions with different sort of takes and analyses on um, the current situation in US politics. Um, so the first thing that will be coming up will be an interview with Jonathan Lockhart. So uh, we'll just play a quick announcement and we'll be going on to that. So you are listening to Green Left Radio on freeCR cr 855 AM.
2: Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus,
1: but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. Good morning everyone. You are listening to Green Left Radio and for our program today we are very happy to be interviewing Jonathan Lockhart who is an African-American activist based in Sydney um, who is also a podcaster who produces and presents
3: the uh, podcast. Morning Jacob, Cry thank you so much for having so, me on yeah, the show, morning, really appreciate um,
1: it. Yeah, so I guess um, one of the so to start off I guess a bit of kind of discussion I mean one of the one of the things we're going to be discussing with Jonathan is these kind of recent kind of events that have happened in the United States um specifically around Donald Trump and the assault on the Capitol building in Washington um if I'm remembering location I'm not that I my my knowledge of American geography isn't the best and basically wanted to sort of unpack a bit of an analysis, I guess, of some of the events, especially the inherent kind of racism behind the far right, um, that stormed the Capitol building. So I guess to start off, Jonathan, what what can you tell us a bit, I guess, a bit in terms of the summary of those events as they kind of unfolded? Especially since for a lot of our listeners, um, we probably didn't necessarily with all the kind of news, um, headlines that was sort of coming through day by day. Yeah, sure. No sorry, problem. Kind of um, I guess
3: one of the, the, the most salient points to uh, bring up is that, um, from, you know, uh, the uh, presidential election, um, coming into now, uh, Donald Trump has, you know, and his constituents, you know, within the, you know, with the, within the right wing and within his uh, supporters in the GOP, um, we've kind of reached this point now where, um, he, has kind of made this, uh, ostensibly, it's like this, it's like this boogeyman around the fact that, um, around the, uh, legitimacy of the, uh, 2020 election. And, uh, going into January the 6th, he had planned, uh, a series of rallies called Stop the Steal. Okay. And, uh, within, uh, Stop the Steal on, on January the 6th, he had like a number of his folks. Um, speaking a few blocks away from the Capitol, like, uh, Rudy Giuliani and his children, etc. And, um uh, they had planned on that day having a march to the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. Now, um, after that, um, it's, it's a haze of different accounts and things that ended up happening, but ostensibly, uh, there was, uh, insurgent actors, let's say within the far right who I kind of wanted to, Use the means of the stop the steal, um, protest, quote unquote, um, to basically enact sedition Uh, on that day in the U S Capitol, um, in the Senate, uh, in the parliamentary chambers, it was set to, uh, certify, um, you know, the, the state, the state elections, um, for uh, Joe Biden as the president elect. So, um, as, as time rolled on, it became apparent that, um, what they were, uh, trying to enact was um, literally that, like, um, as they put it, like, stop the steal. They were trying to make it into the parliamentary chambers, into the Senate floor, in order to quite literally take the votes out of senators' hands in order to not certify the election.
1: Yeah, and I guess one of the more interesting sort of things about these events is the fact that they were kind of able to assault the kind of capital kind of building itself, because I can sort of just imagine... What the kind of state kind of response would be if it would, let's say if it was a group of Black Lives Matter mm. um, protesters with guns, like, or hypothetical, um, assaulting the Capitol building. What, why is it, do you think, like, what, what was sort of the reasoning why that these group of kind of far right, the group, um, these group of far right um, people were able to even get as far as um, the, making the, the act. Again,
3: that's pretty capital. funny. That has like a couple moving parts to it as well. Um, one of them being that you know uh, the U.S. Capitol is protected by you know what I mean, the uh, different intelligence groups like the Secret Service, FBI, etc., right um, of the senators and the uh, steps and the grounds of the U.S. Capitol um were being protected by uh the Metro police by Capitol uh you know by the Capitol Metro. And from the reports that I've seen thus far, um, there was one, a communications breakdown between, you know, uh Secret Service and the people who uh were, you know, guys to protect um, you know, the senators inside and uh Capitol Metro. But um within that, um I find your question like it's pretty interesting. Um there's try to think of the best way to put this it's kind of like the same reason as to why you don't see uh, spider-man and peter parker in the same location if you know what i mean <laughs> and that on the far right you know they they've been acting you know of since you know I, I i'll say you know uh you know since you know we've kind of seen the dawning of black lives matter um you know this is like 2013 to 2014 that uh, the police you know what i mean as a as a state institution um that's that's their number one guys is to protect um you know the, the the power apparatus and you know which you know uh, you know deems their actions justifiable and and within that um they most likely you know and i mean this is you know a bit of personal opinion speaking here they most likely saw um you know these far right activists again quote unquote um as something you know maligned you know what I mean? They they probably most likely did not see the actions that they were taking on that day as anything to really, you know, uh raise arms against until it was quite literally too late until they were like destroying state property.
1: You know, does that kind of reflect the fact that they I mean, I haven't seen any sort of strong evidence that, you know, there's not there's not not there's not necessarily a conspiracy of collusion between all the kind of state departments, between The State Department's and the kind of far right, but what there does seem to be kind of evidence of is within the actual kind of police force itself, there is a certain level of sympathy between, um, um, in sort of the kind of you know rank and file kind of police officers for the this kind of far right, and I I guess want to sort of hear. Your sort of Um, comments. Yeah. uh,
3: Again, I have to agree. Um, You know, kind of like pulling, like I said, from like 2013, you know, the dawning of like, you know, what we now, you know, as the, you know, Black Lives Matter uh, movement Um, into today, you know, uh, so many people have uh, pointed out those ideas that, um, you know, the, like I said, the police, the state apparatus, they, they see, you know, uh, far right activists, you know, these, uh, these terror groups as maligned. And, um, as they have taken to the streets from the George Floyd protest till now, they have quite literally, you know what I mean, walked arms and arms with them. They called them friendlies, et cetera. So we we could see, you know, uh, right on its face, you know, that, um, a lot of what they deem to believe, um, try to think of the best way to put this. What they deem to believe, um, as uh, justifiable actions by these far right activists, they, it, you know, they say it as something that they can uh, align themselves with. And, um, through that, they, like I said, they quite literally would allow them to, you know, uh, you know, march into the steps of the U.S. Capitol and destroy, uh, to destroy property. You know, like I said, like a Black Lives Matter protest and say that, you know, you know, the, the means were reversed. This would not, we, we would not see the same sort of action taking place. It would be, I don't think this is a person alive today who could look at the actions that happened on January the 6th and think otherwise.
1: Yeah. And I guess, I mean, what has, in terms of this kind of assault on the kind of capital kind of building, um, what has really been the response of the establishment? And I'm, I'm talking in terms of the establishment, both, you know, the media, like the kind of mainstream kind of media, but also the republicans um cuz there has been a certain level of public yeah. sympathy from the Repu- um from republican politicians for this kind of assault and in fact we've even seen some sympathy for it uh from our own very own australian politicians and also the democrat establishment um who you know in some ways have condemned and obviously condemned Mm. the kind of assault on the
3: capitol Um, building yeah you know as far as like the democrats are concerned um i I, i'm trying to remember if it was i think it might have been like the the next day or maybe the day after um you know president-elect joe biden uh came out and it was a pretty pretty um again personal opinion speaking here i felt like it was a pretty uh, middling statement you know i mean it's you know it's a lot of like this sort of like milk toast um kind of neoliberal um, you know, statements that you would see from someone who's trying to legitimize, you know, the uh, the office of the White House, virtually the state, and that, you know, uh, one of his uh most salient points, as we've seen so often from these sorts of uh institutions, is in quote, you know, this is not who we are, this is not what America is, et cetera, as opposed to um, uh, you know, quite literally, you know, trying to raise awareness about these sorts of things within state power, um, because that delegitimizes. Um, uh, the the apparatus and the systems in which they um, uh, and, and and the systems in which they control. Um, the Republicans, um, also, you know, it's it's been a it's it's been a bit twofold, where it's like, you know, um, some of the Republican, uh, you know, senators and congressmen, right? Um, they still want to be able to, you know, uh, become a part of like different lobbies and, you know, what I mean. They still want they basically they they don't want their funding you know what I mean, from any of these uh, these state institutions to stop coming in. So um, a number of them have started uh, distancing themselves from the Trump White House and so on.
1: Now, the next kind of quick, yeah, but, well, I guess the kind of next kind of question about that kind of flows from that in terms of how the establishment has kind of responded to it. I've seen kind of a lot of kind of commentary about how, yeah, you know, this assault on kind of the capital um, you know, it doesn't represent what America kind of is. And I guess I want to sort of hear a bit um of a bit of more kind of theoretical kind of analysis from you, I guess, on, you know, in terms of this 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 the context, the political context for this far right assault on the kind of capital kind of building, um, how does it kind of link with the sort of ideologies of white supremacy and really the kind of foundation of, of the United States, which is, you know, and like Australia inherently a country um, that is, well, yeah, I mean, you, you, nailed, you,
3: you nailed it there in your opening statement here about, you know, us getting ready to talk about this theoretically, is that this is, you know, uh, as you were saying before, um, this is the formation of white supremacy, like, you know, precisely like on its face, you know, um, you know, these, these acts of sedition, you know, insurrection, um, I would I would bring people to you know I I try to raise awareness around these sorts of uh um of these sorts of uh, acts of violence you know when it comes to you know we could look all the way back to like you know the the 1960s or even farther back than that we can go and look back to the 1860s um and these are the same sort of actions that you would see um around you know the abolition of slavery you know the Civil War right and uh, Reconstruction um. And, and within that, this is like this bolstering of, you know, these sorts of, you know, uh, puritanical, um, uh, acts of violence and, uh, you know, just, just looking to, um, seize control away from, uh, you know, any act of democracy.
1: I guess one of the, one of the sort of interesting kind of things about it is does, does I guess that in terms of like, President Trump.
3: Yeah, the clock is, is ticking now.
1: Formerly, pre- he's now no longer president. Essentially, but, but one of the things about kind of Trump has is he does essentially represent a kind of movement for the kind mm. of growing kind of far right to kind of gravitate towards. And I guess, do you think? the guess, what are you, I guess your kind of thoughts on, you know, in terms of this kind of assault on the kind of capital kind of building? Does it? um represents the fact that trumpism is despite the fact it has been defeated electorally by the democrats for for better or worse what um, what do you kind of see this this kind of reflecting in terms of the future of of um trumpism especially since there's clearly a section of the establishment who wants to smash it out of the that's not motivated by any left wing kind of ideology like i'm talking in reference to the fact that uh, Twitter, um, has permanently banned, um, Trump from, or oh, I think he had, I, I, I wasn't sure about the 100% of that, um, has banned, um, Trump from Twitter. Um, there's the fact that a backlash that has been in response has been a crackdown on the far right on a lot of these kind of social media kind of networks. And I guess if with that kind of in mind, what, what is sort of like the future of the, of the far right in this sort of particular context, especially in the context of a, of a quite a week left that is not necessarily building counter. Again, this is a pretty interesting
3: question. Right. Um, the, first off, that's pretty funny that you would mention the, the the Twitter ban of Donald Trump, and that um I, I find it most interesting that uh, one of his last tweets uh, quite literally like referred to that that uh, you know the Make America Great Again the America First uh movement that he's you know he's kind of uh, uh he's spearheaded. Uh, he, he sees it lasting long into the future so um uh, as you as we were saying before um the u s left um has like a number of spinning plates, let's say you know going into twenty twenty one and far and far beyond and that uh you know uh, direct action mutual aid bail funds et cetera um and this fight continuing against you know the racist uh you know state actors and the police uh is is gonna continue far into um let's say the the potential sunsetting of of trumpism um, in in this iteration let's say um as far as you know the the republicans you know um claiming like they're smashing it or whatever i feel like it's just most likely just going to be a recontextualization of the of the dog whistling that you know made him so popular um you know his you know his. Ostensibly, I, I was talking about this with someone yesterday. This, you know, if you look back into his his past, this is like the actions of like a mob don, pretty much. You know what I mean? You, you, uh, you know, you you, you use uh, you know, the the means in which you you know you possibly can. You 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 roar up people. You know what I mean? And then you 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 set them on a um on an unsuspecting public. And I don't think that the Republicans, you know what I mean, or any of the congressmen. Um, through this last election, are really gonna distance themselves from that sort of rhetoric. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and you, along with that, like inside of before? that, uh, yeah, the Democrats now, I, you know, as you were saying, with this, uh, you know, this sort of big tech movement, uh, you know, to uh censor Donald Trump. I, I this is my personal opinion, getting ready to speak here, but I, I kind of feel like, you know, his, like I said, his base you know, have, have basically been kind of shooed to the corners of the surface web. But, um, I, I feel like this is just going to be something that drives them underground and to, like encrypted, um, apps. Like, um, uh, you know, we just saw, um, one of their larger bases parlor being taken off the surface web. And then there's like another far white, uh, Twitter alternative called Gab, also being, uh, taken down over the last few days. But, you know, like I said, there's encrypted apps like signal and telegram that they, um, Really like um, gathering in groups and organizing in. So um, if anything, you know, this this big this sort of big tech censorship is a double edged sword.
1: Yeah, because I think um, one of the things about the kind of big tech sort of censorship is there was already kind of like a shrek record of Twitter and Facebook um, silencing uh, Palestinian activists um, and. One of the other interesting things to note is one of the more kind of liberal kind of responses to this sort of assault on the Capitol building, and I know Joe Biden has sort of alluded to this, is basically that we are, you know, in the context of the kind of far right kind of um, terrorism, we are under threat by, of domestic kind of terrorism. But, of course, when Joe Biden kind of says things like that, you know he's not just talking about this sort of loony, sort of racist far yeah. right. He's also directing it kind of to the left. And it's sort of like there's clearly seems to be, I guess, in response to this assault on the Capitol there's clearly going to be a core to, in fact, actually increase the level of of um state control. And, in fact, one of the sort of a random sort of comment I just want, like to sort of make is going back to sort of my comment, um, the comments and discussion about the police force and their kind of support um, for these sort of far-right sort of ideologies. It's sort of like almost like a weird sort of funny contradiction that, you know, from some liberal commentators and from a lot of um, liberal sort of capitalist sort of politicians that, you know, you know, the response, um, to how we deal with this is actually we need more police, we need more secret police, et cetera, so we can prevent this from happening again. When actually it seems to be that the systematic nature, um, of the police is actually one of the reasons why this was in fact allowed to happen, which is a bit of a sort of amusing um, kind of Yeah, most,
3: most definitely, uh, I agree. You know, um, as I was saying before, if you look back on some of the, uh, the video footage that's available, um you know from from January sixth you know um the 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 police are quite literally like raising barricades and assisting people up the steps so uh, again, like I said uh, like I was saying previously, you could see them quite literally marching arm in arm around certain aspects of uh you know like i said this this trumpism and the way that they see uh a state apparatus and how they want to seize control uh um but back to your previous point um as you were saying before, uh, this is most likely, like I, like I was saying previously, this is going to be a double edged sword as far as like, you know, you, you try to sell it one way and being like, yes, you know, um, intelligence services, you know, the police, um, we should try to embolden them to, uh, you know, try to wrangle in or make arrests or anything like this. And I, I feel like, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not going to be used with this sort of, uh, with any sort of accuracy that like anybody, um, we honestly like expect that the, the police are not going to act like, uh, with a fair hand whatsoever. You know what I mean? And as you, as you were saying, uh, pr- uh, as you were saying before, this is going to come down as like a bit of a shadow, um, over the left in the United States. You know, when it comes to this sh- censorship and, uh, the police actions, as we were seeing, uh, previously, um, in 2020 during the George Floyd protests, where, um, you know, there was like, uh, National Guard. Um, you know, people were being like, uh, detained by like, uh, you know, uh, by, by the National Guard and their actors like within it, you know what I mean? And I, 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 feel like this is just going to be like the technological version of that. And, uh, again, um, I don't really think that the hand is going to be too strong when it comes to, um, any sort of quote unquote justice when it comes to the state with these far right actors. I, I, I just don't see that it's, a. Uh, this, the state, you know, and, and the police and like uh, the prison apparatus, and you know, the uh, justice system has never acted in a way where it's like just when it comes to these sorts of means. Um, a, a perfect example of this is that with over, uh, with over the last uh, couple of days, this is like a breaking story that uh, the far right again is like a, preparing another protest on the uh, 17th, known as the Day of Rebellion, where, um, uh, Trump and his uh his his followers are planning on coming back to Washington DC to interrupt the uh the inauguration of Joe Biden and they are quite literally calling for their followers to come to this one armed so uh, again we're, we're we're most likely going to see the failing of like you know the state apparatus and uh, you know the police um again to even try to bring this into a proper light so people can understand what what uh, this moment truly means as far as the far right and its terrorism is concerned.
1: Is there I mean going responding to that quickly, I mean um you know some one one of the funny things I just remembered is um with all this sort of chaos around the storming of the Capitol kind of building, um I I, I almost actually forgot that actually president joe biden's inauguration is actually going to be happening um a few kind of week i think on the around the 22nd
3: it's usually the 20th the 23rd usually the, yeah around, but it, it, i think day. the i think the date uh, is being and, penciled again right now 20th. because of what happened but yeah it's usually the 20th yeah
1: so is the far is at this stage whenever this the old inauguration is going to happen is the far right or or any sort of coin um, from yeah like i said it's the seventeenth.
3: the 17th they're they're planning this uh it, they're calling it refuse to be silenced like it, this is what i'm saying like this this rhetoric this dog whistling within it and it's quite literally i'm looking at a flyer for it now that people could probably look this up after they uh after they listen to the program um like i said it's refuse to be silenced armed march on capitol hill and all state capitals on january the 17th so yeah this is this is most likely like a like i said like a rallying cry for the far right to kind of you know bring themselves together off the surface rep and and and, you know uh plan for a plan for further actions beyond uh the 17th Hmm.
1: And I guess the next, um, I kind of want to move on to, I guess, more the final sort of discussion point I sort of want to sort of talk about for this. But this might go seem to be going into a bit of a different kind of section. But I guess I want to sort of hear, I guess, your perspective and your kind of opinion on, I guess, now that Joe Biden is going to be essentially inaugurated quite soon, um, how, what do you think is going to be the character of the kind of Joe Biden kind of presidency um, in relation to kind of these events and how have, do you think that these events will influence um, Joe Biden's presidency in a particular direction? And, I, and I'm kind of interested in hearing a bit of speculation on how you think it will influence sort of Joe um, Biden's sort of Yeah, kind of Interesting
3: question there, Beth um so yeah as as we were seeing like uh like i said to, to kind of turn the clock back um you know to earlier 2020 like the you know the u.s summer of 2020 uh joe biden has quite literally said you know that he has no plans him and Kam- you know uh, uh president you know vice president elect uh kamala harris they have no plans on you know any sort of like a defunding of police or you know or trying to you know reform the police or, or whatsoever and as we said previously in our conversation you know um there there's talks now of like a uh, new domestic terrorism acts and these sorts of things and uh, a lot of what makes up his uh his legislative base and his transition base all have uh really deep pockets when it comes to um the the police state so um I, from what i remember he was proposing like a increase in the budget of policing to up to like 300 million so um we're, we're going to see you know uh new forms of uh surveillance policing new sorts of apparatus quite literally being handed onto the street um, um, against uh you know left activists um, in in the United States in, in the coming weeks and months to come um, the this most likely and, and then again you know we know, we know the uh, uh the track the track record of uh, Kamala Harris which you know she is like a quite affectionately known as like a you know a top cop from her time um um as district attorney um and state attorney and senator of the state of california uh the these two together most likely um they're they're not gonna paint a pretty picture as far as like you know what their plans are when it comes to like on the ground policing and like prisons it's it's gonna be a pretty it's gonna be a pretty interesting time And, and then like i said like uh their lobbies are all made up of some of the uh some of the worst advisors and state advisors you could possibly, uh, you could possibly conjure up when it comes to these sorts of actions. It's gonna, it's gonna be glad handed. It's gonna be welcome. It's gonna be open arms, uh, for these sorts of actions. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it'll be a trying time for lack of a better word.
1: Yeah. And I guess maybe to conclude, I guess a bit of this kind of discussion, do you kind of have any sort of final comments you would like to make? I mean, even like maybe a comment on, the pro, um, on what you think really, like, so the gen- you've sort of talked about really the future, what the Joe Biden administration, but maybe speaking more generally about, you know, what America, what, where, where America is probably going to be going in the next several years, especially in the context of everything that is mm. happening with the
3: COVID-19 oh, pandemic as well. Yeah, that's a, uh, for lack of a, for lack of a better word, it's a pretty, uh, what we're getting ready to discuss now is like a pretty, like, macabre, you know what I mean? I I don't I don't want to be too morose. You know what I mean? I don't want to leave anybody with like a downer note. You know, uh, so I, I I'd rather call for people to you know uh focus on um uh, what's most most likely necessary, like in this time, you know, where it's like a you know bail action funds. You know what I mean? Um, assisting people with like you know uh the fight against evictions and the moratorium that was lifted um in December of 2020. And, uh, you know, this is mostly just like direct action to just like solidarity amongst people because, um, the actions on, on January the 6th, as like salacious and like, uh, as dangerous as they were, um, uh, we have a future. We have a future to fight for. So, uh, uh with that being said, though, you know, uh, like I said, I, I just hope that people could look at this time and, and see the middling and just the milquetoast response from the Democrats. Um, and just kind of just have newer conversations about this moment and that, uh, to the the two party system in the United States, uh, and the Democrats most especially are, are not the ones the the, the, actually I take that back. They're ill prepared for the moment. So, (laughs) um, but within that, we need to start coming up with, um, new grounds for solidarity. and kind of understanding the moment a bit more and, uh, just, just preparing for, just preparing for abolitionist future.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you very much, um, Jonathan. I think it's, um, it has actually been quite a very, a very kind of good interview that in terms of unpacking a lot of the kind of events, um, that have kind of happened on the capital boom, because I think it has been something that has dominated kind of our, um, our listeners sort of minds and essentially it's pretty much all the kind of people on the left in uh, in Australia, even want to really sort of talk about. So, thank you very much, Jonathan. And um, just for our listeners, you are listening to Green Left Radio, and we might just go play a
3: quick uh, announcement. Thank you so much, um, man. I really, uh, I really, really to appreciate uh, of coming on the program.
1: Yeah, and thank you very much, Jonathan, again. All right, I'll be playing the announcement now. <laughs> Do you need to renew your subscription, make a donation,
3: or pass on some information to a programmer?
1: We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 9419
3: 8377 each weekday between 1 and 5 pm and talk to a staff
2: member.
0: That's 03 9419 8377.
2: 3CR Community Radio, here to stay.
1: You're listening to Green Left Radio and following um, the interview that we did with Jonathan Lockout, I'm going to be playing a recording of a talk that happened at the Socialist Alliance National Conference on January 9th and this is from the Democratic Socialists of America member Isaac Silver who has been previously been a guest on previous programs of Green Left Radio to talk about US politics in the week of Trump's um So it's just another bit of analysis on the U.S. politics um, that um, our listeners will hopefully enjoy. You are listening to Green Left Radio.
2: So uh thank you for having me and thanks for the uh that was an excellent report, Susan, that actually sort of um, covered some of what I was going to cover. This has been uh, a little bit of a difficult week to attempt to summarize U.S. politics as I was, um, trying to sort of put together an outline over, over the course of the week, everything changed fairly dramatically, uh, day by day. So I'm just going to, um, uh, address a few questions and I'm not sure if I'll be able to venture really a comprehensive view of U.S. politics because it's, I think that that would be, um, there's a, a little hubristic to think that, uh, with so many um, moving factors, it's, it's, uh, kind of impossible to do, but, uh, so just go, going on to this week, week uh, the question of whether this was a real coup attempt or, um, political theater. I think that this was, um, the, uh, attack or whatever you want to call it on the Capitol, uh, this Wednesday, U.S. Capitol was the last attempt of a long effort by Trump and his supporters to hold on to the presidency, um, with increasing desperation. Uh, so they started with relatively traditional Republican techniques like vote suppression, um, uh, sort of uh, messing with uh, the Postal Service and, and uh, interrupting mail-in voting, preparing for court challenges and so on. And as it became more desperate, um, uh, it, it led to, um, like Susan alluded to uh, earlier in the week, there was a statement by all uh living secretaries of defense saying, you know, the Department of Defense cannot uh, violate the U.S. Constitution. So it's clear that there were various things going on behind the scenes of seeing what he could do to remain in power. And what ultimately happened was this, um, you know, sort of a few thousand people uh, rushing the Capitol to delay the uh, certification vote. Um, I think that traditional elements of a coup, of a successful coup, like allegiance of sections of the military apparatus, uh, obviously wasn't present. Uh, there is broad support for Trump among police across the country. Um, so it's at least plausible, if not likely, that there was uh, collusion from members of the D.C. police, the Capitol police, um, but seemingly not, uh, you know, a large organized conspiracy probably more in the, you know, in, in, in the arena of, of individual actors, um, but I'm sure that will be investigated. Uh, and in fact, I think that something that may impact those allegiances are the fact that there was a member of the Capitol Police um, killed in the scuffle. I uh, died um, earlier today or yesterday. So it's also to me uncertain about whether Trumpism, or how specifically Trumpism will be weakened or emboldened by all of this. In the immediate short term, um, the things that are sort of dominating the headlines, Trumpism has been weakened and isolated politically within the Republican Party. Um, and in some ways, this is almost like a reset to the 2016 uh, Republican presidential primaries, where you had an allegiance of all of these various institutional actors in the Republican party going against Trump. Um, since then there had been kind of a pragmatic adaptation to tempor- uh, opportunistic allegiance with Trump. Mitch McConnell, the speaker of the house is the uh, best example of this. Um, they had already begun to distance themselves uh, in the, in the past couple of weeks, and that's only going to accelerate. And similarly, Organizations of the capitalist class like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the National Association of Manufacturers, which is even more right wing than the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, have issued public denunciations of Trump, uh, even as far as calling on um, Pence to to um, invoke the 25th Amendment and and uh, oust Trump in the last two weeks of his term. Um, so. Trumpism is, is sort of isolated in that way as well. And then there was, of course, the statement from all of the surviving um, secretaries of defense. And finally, as of uh, a couple of hours ago, he was permanently banned from Twitter, which is his main um, sort of mouthpiece and uh, way that he communicates with his audience. So there there have been these various institutional moves to isolate Trump and Trumpism. Um, and I think that there's also an anticipation among those forces and in, in transitioning to a Biden administration, which kind of, which sees, uh, you know, bipartisanship and cooperation across the aisle and so forth as a kind of religion. So um, just moving on to the next administration. However, it remains to be seen how, how effective this will be at lower levels. Um, a poll on Wednesday suggested that nearly half of Republican voters approved of the attack on the Capitol building. And even after that attack, about a quarter of Congress people uh, voted for um, challenge at least one of the challenges to the election result, uh, which is symbolically just a display of allegiance to Trump. So this is all together, you know, fi- with him finally announcing yesterday that he will recognize the transition of power. This brings, To a close this chapter of Donald Trump in power, uh, but it's, it's really too early to say, I think, what the impact of that will be, whether this will be seen as a, you know, a heroic charge in defense of a, um, stolen election or whether there will be a scattering of forces. It, it, it it could, it could really go either way. I think that the story of the past four years has been a real shift to, towards Trump is kind of a cult figure of the far right um, with massive support in the tens of millions of hardcore of, of uh, millions of supporters. But at the same time um, within that big sea of, of uh, right wing fascistic, right populist other um, ideas, there haven't been, the, there hasn't been the coherence of uh strong fascist street organizations or um, anything like that. They can't really keep themselves together. They can't, this was, in fact, the first um, the past few months is among, are among the first times that they've been able to put significant numbers in the streets and sort of uh, not be repelled by, um, by the left in the streets. And potentially that could even be just a factor of the pandemic. They're much more comfortable operating and, um, mobilizing in, in these conditions. So, um, so whether this will rally, uh, people to their cause or, um, scatter and weaker, weaken them, I think either of those is possible. And it's really not clear at this point. Uh, it's also not clear what, what the future of this movement is without Trump as a figure. I mean, obviously he's, he's, uh, so he's not the president anymore. He's still going to be broadcasting ideas and so forth, but um, he's not going to live forever. And and something that's been kind of emblematic of it is that he hasn't been uh, is, is it really is a sort of a cult type of um, movement where he can elevate and then squash anybody else uh, overnight. And there haven't, there has not allowed the emergence of any other um, lasting leaders or any organization. So, Um, so we will have to see. So onto the Biden administration, um, he's by now announced, I think the majority or all of the members of his cabinet, uh, that's a pretty slow, that's slower than normal. Um, and it's possible that his administration won't actually have confirmed appointments, um, until, you know, sometime uh, late January or in, into February, uh, by and large there, or in across the board they're the kind of pro-corporate figures you would expect, um, the Biden administration, uh, like the Biden campaign, uh, it's been generally, um, impervious to any influence from the left. And I think that the immediate, uh, another difficulty with kind of sussing out what will the, uh, agenda, what will the Biden administration agenda be is that he, uh, doesn't really have a clear political program, um, other than, you know, vague generalities of a return to Obama area, era uh, um, bipartisan politics and so forth. His, his role in the primary was to be the anti-Sanders and then his role in the general election was to be the anti-Trump, um, and neither of those was wedded to a particularly strong uh, international or domestic um, political program. And furthermore, the fact that the, the uh, short-term priorities or short-term kind of emergency situation will be dealing with the the reality of the pandemic, uh, which is quite severe at this point. We're now up to about 4,000 deaths a day, which will likely continue to increase um and meanwhile Biden is is uh not indicated any willingness to take the kind of um quarantine measures that would be necessary to contain it so that will continue to shape uh US politics for the coming months and um and yeah so it's sort of uh difficult to see, see where that goes because at some point it it really will spiral out of control without significant measures taken, but there's no movement to take those at this point, even um, as is being done in the UK, for example. Um, so yeah, then the final couple of things that um, Alex mentioned that I might want to talk about are uh, this force the vote um, uh, movement. I'm, I'm not sure what you would call it. for The force the, the vote phenomenon um, about a procedural tactic to force a vote on Medicare for all by the, uh, small number of, um, left-wing members of Congress. Uh, that effect, I mean, I think that essentially that, um, uh, just broke on the shore, uh, last weekend when Nancy Pelosi, the, the, the tactic was supposed to be demanding that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other left-wing Congress people um, condition their vote for Nancy Pelosi, as Speaker of the House, on uh, bringing Medicare for All bill to a floor vote, which would certainly fail when taken to a vote, but then the logic goes would expose uh, who, who was really going to vote for and against it and open up the potential for um, uh, challenging uh, those who were not for it in the future. Um, so... Nancy Pelosi was unanimously selected as this Democrat speaker of the house, uh, including by the left wing members, which in my opinion was, is a, an an error, but I also don't think that the force of the vote, um, that that tactic, uh, was a really clear assessment of how it, it, it wasn't clear what the, what the actual longer term strategy for that would be. Um, there's not, there, there wasn't an alternative to, uh, you know, in, in immediate prag- pragmatic terms, there was not an alternative to Nancy Pelosi's left, um, for Speaker of the House. So it's a very weak bargaining hand to say, uh, to not vote for her on some condition because she could just say, you know, and then what? Um, so I think that it was a, a sort of muddled, confused initiative, but it did speak to, uh, in fact, the, i think that the the extent it had some appeal online it spoke to the uh desperation that people feel to um uh bring progressive legislation to a vote and uh in in my opinion it sort of puts into relief the fact that there isn't a clear um strategy from the left on advancing uh, many of our initiatives at this point i think that the the past um 6 months or so has really kind of blindsided uh the left of the US and so um uh my assumption is that in the in the first couple of you know in the in the coming months of the um Biden administration uh, there will be a re- reconfiguration of of that i think that the um collapse of the sanders campaign was a real disaster and while the Black Lives Matter movement um, and sort of social explosion this summer was inspiring, it left very little organizational um, coherence behind. And so uh, my hope is is that we can sort of get our acts together and re- reorient towards um, non-electoral uh, activities, which I think is, is now um, – really seems to have monopolized the attention of, of much of the left in the US.
1: You're listening to Green Left Radio and you're just listening to a recording of a talk by Isaac Silva. Now just might play a quick announcement and we'll go toward to the next part of the program.
3: There's plenty of specialist music programs to choose from on the three CR grid. Explore the 3CR schedule online at 3cr.org.au. Oh, it makes me happy. Yes, this is our vibration. Check out... Music. Sons. Frontier. Great voices. Music. Matters. The hipster hop show.
2: The heavy, heavy session. The Planet X radio show. Satellite skies. <laughs> Shindig. Sweet dreams. <laughs>
3: Tune in to 3CR 855 AM on your digital radio or streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Let our music make you happy.
1: You're listening to Green Left Radio, and not necessarily um, the um, the right sort of time, but we're going to sort of end this program by just giving a bit of plug um, to some of the things happening in the actress world right now. So this is going to be the special activist calendar section of the program, and. Last week, we were speaking about the refugee rights campaign and how there has been a lot of consistent mobilisation to free the refugees who are currently held and imprisoned at the Park Hotel. There are more than 60 refugees who are currently imprisoned in the Park Hotel, which is just on 701 Swanson Street. And there has been a number of um, a number of groups are starting to organise different protests and issue, um, around um, around the centre. And the just to let listeners know, to start off, there are daily protests outside the Park Hotel that have been organised by Stand Together for Justice. And on weekdays, there are protests at five pm every weekday, and um, they are. W- protest every weekend on 3pm. So I highly encourage you to get down there to the Park Hotel to stand in solidarity with the refugees. Um, It is, I think, quite important and a very important kind of campaign. Now, just to give you a taste of some of the events that are kind of coming up, this Saturday on January the 16th, there's going to be an open air public forum at Lincoln Square, which is actually near the Park Hotel from 1.30pm to 3.30pm. And it's going to be an open-air forum on the history of the refugee rights movement. So that's going to be happening from 1.30pm to 3.30pm at Lincoln Square. Also happening on Lincoln Square on the same Saturday is there is going to be a Park Hotel party protest um, that a number of groups, including some people who are involved with FreeCR, are going to be part of this event, and that's happening at 6pm on Lincoln Square. And then, um, to give a bit of a plug to a special program that's happening on FreeCR, there's going to be a Tonna Mini Wat and Mollabong Henna commemoration in um, 2021, and that's going to be happening at 12pm via FreeCR. And to give you a bit of background, basically this is at a commemoration event for two Indigenous freedom fighters who were the first men to be executed in Victoria. And basically, this is a commemoration to honor and respect their lives and to give recognition of, of their, of their efforts for liber, um, for liberation. So that's going to be airing on Free cr at 12 p.m., um, this, um, next Wednesday. Then on Saturday the 23rd, there's going to be Strategy for the Refugee Movement open air public forum from 1.30 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. at Lincoln Square. Um, that is going to be organised by Refugee Action Collective, and then just to make a big mention, um, big plug, um, to save the date for the Invasion Day Dawn Service, which is going to be happening at 5:30am at King's Domain. At this stage, there hasn't been a Facebook event put up for the Invasion Day protests in Melbourne, but I imagine it will definitely be happening. So I, I reckon for all our listeners, you should definitely save the date for Tuesday the 26th. The rally will likely be massive, and I think despite the pandemic, I think it's going to be a very important event to mobilise um, people for. And then on Wednesday 26th, um, January 27th, there's going to be a rally, drop the charge on Chris Breen, defend the right to protest, free the refugees at 8.30am outside the Melbourne Magistrates Court. And that's going to be happening on, um, and that's going to be happening on Wednesday, January the 23rd, 8.30am. On Saturday, January the 30th, um, there's, um, A united rally, free the park hotel refugees at 2 p.m. at the park hotel, 701 Swanson Street. And that's going to be happening, um, at 2 p.m. Saturday, January the 30th. And then there'll be another rally, free the Medivac refugees, February rally at 2 p.m. on the state library on February the 13th. So, yep, that's just a bit of a sum up of the different kind of events kind of happening anyway we're getting to the end of our program i'd like to thank all our listeners and all our guests who are on the program this week and I' would like to write uh, um, to tune in I'd like um, to say to listeners tune in next week um, for this friday and then after this program on um, beyond zero emissions'll be playing um so you are listening to green left radio on freeCR 855 a.m.
0: This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit.
1: If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the
0: farmers. Arise, you prisoners of want for reason in revolt now thunders and at last ends the age of Kant away with all your superstitions serve all masses arise we'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize that's right the commies are back Reds underneath your beds and that